All right, I'm going to uh, draw your attention now to um, the book of Psalms. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to Psalm 67. So the Psalms, of course, are pretty easy to find in the Bible, even if you're not very familiar with the Bible, because all you do is crack it open right up to the middle, and you'll, you'll probably either hit the Psalms or close to it. There's 150 Psalms at all, and we're going to look at Psalm 67, known as a great uh, missionary psalm. There's a lot of references to the nations in the psalms and God's obligation to the nations. Psalm 67 kind of sets itself apart from those other psalms because from beginning to end, it focuses on Israel's, God's people's task to seek to be a blessing to the nations um, around them. So I want to begin with Psalm 67 and use that as kind of a launching point for other texts that we're going to be considering as we continue um, our series on mission. And um, we're going to look at uh, the second part of what we began last week. We began by looking at the Old Testament basis for mission. And we're going to finish that out this morning. Then we're going to look at the New Testament and consider some practical matters um, after that regarding the whole matter of uh, mission evangelism. Um, I want to say one quick thing before we read Psalm 67. It was uh, noted... Uh, by Fritz uh, prior to the service, and then he mentioned it in the prayer regarding um, this uh, in-house meeting that we had over a couple di- uh, over the last couple of days as leaders. And uh, um, it was rather interesting. We talked about so many things, but one emphasis, at least in my mind, that kept coming up is the, the delicate balance that we need to have as kind of a beginning church, because we're relatively new yet, the, the delicate balance between um, taking care of the sheep, which we... Uh, I forget the word that was used when it was described, but we had, the word wasn't disagreements. I don't think we really had disagreements, but there, there were times of intense conversation about are we really, are we doing the work that God's called us to do? And I, I think that the, and it, no leadership does it perfectly, and I think there are many times, and I uh, include myself in this, that we have uh, uh, neglected some of the pastoral aspects here. Because we, we want to be an outward-faced church. Uh, on the other hand, it's very easy to fall into just taking care of our own, being cared, uh, caring for our own needs, and then we lose sight of those outside. And so I want, to, I, want you to re- I want to remind you of this from the Gospel of John chapter 10, where, of course, there's only one person who maintained a perfect balance in anything, right? It's Jesus. So in John chapter 10, Jesus talks about the sheep, and he talks about knowing the sheep, Um, naming the sheep, calling them by name, caring for the sheep. And then Jesus goes on also to say in John 10, 16, but he says, I have other sheep too that are not presently of this fold, and I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So then we will be one flock with one shepherd. And I thought that was a a beautiful reminder to us that, again, only Jesus provides the perfect balance between, between taking care of his own sheep, but knowing that there's other sheep that need to be called and brought in as well. So that's behind this whole part on on mission, to remind us of our mission, but at the same time remembering to care for one another, and uh, may the Lord give us that kind of balance. So anyway, Psalm 67, I want to draw your attention to this now. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us. Now remember, this is, this is the nation of Israel speaking to God. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, 
and your saving power among the nations. Now notice what comes from their heart. Their heart is directed to the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So, when you pay close attention to this psalm, it's, it, we could summarize it in this way. It's very simple. Israel is reaching out to the heart of God and saying, Lord, as your people, we need your blessing. Lord, bless us. But it doesn't end there. Okay? Because God's people have always been a so that people. So the psalmist says, Lord, bless us so that in receiving your blessing, we might be a blessing to the peoples, to the nations, so that in the nations being blessed, Lord, the nations might go on to be a blessing to you by doing ultimately, O oh Lord, what you have created the nations to do but presently aren't doing, and that is to bless your name, to worship you, to magnify you, to glorify you. Lord, bless us so that we may be a blessing to them so that they may bless you. As if Israel's saying, because after all, Lord, you have, you've taught us that you have chosen us as a people and you have covenanted with us, that is, you've entered into a formal bond of friendship and love with us so that we then may be a blessing to those around us. Not so that we can just kind of revel and think, oh, isn't this great? The Lord has chosen us and the Lord has covenanted with us. That is such a wonderful thing. Well, it is. But Lord, may you privilege us with your blessing so that we may be a blessing to others. Those two are always tied together, their identity and their purpose. And by the way, um, that's the same thing with you and me. The identity and the calling of God's people in the Old Covenant in the New Testament is identical to what we have today. There's no difference. And why do I say that? Because when you look at uh, the first epistle of Peter, Peter actually employs Old Testament language that links Old Testament with New Testament, Israel with what the Bible calls you and me in the book of Galatians, the new Israel. Would you put on the first um, uh, quote there from 1 Peter 2? I want you to take a look at this. Here we find our identity and purpose. You are a chosen race. The Lord is speaking to us now as a new Israel. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Ah, we're so that people. So that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Okay, you see those two things? Identity and purpose. What's our identity? From the Bible, it says that we are a chosen race. We're chosen by God. We are, as we saw last week, and I explained it, so I'm not going to do it now, we're a royal priesthood. That is, we stand between God and the nations. We are not just a holy race and a royal priesthood, but we are a holy people. We are a holy nation. That is, we are set apart to the Lord as a contrast people, as a light to the nations. And we are a people for God's own possession. So that's our identity. 
So this is our identity, and God has given us this identity. Why? So that with our mouths and with our lives we may declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Identity and purpose, identical to Old Covenant Israel, to Old Testament Israel. Okay? In fact, going back to Israel, because this, this second sermon is on, on the Old Testament Israel, did you know with their identity and purpose, this is, this, you may find this kind of interesting, I don't know if you know this, but God placed his people, the nation of Israel, at the very center of the earth for the exact purpose of reaching out to the rest of the earth. He says, I put you right at the center. It's like, it's like uh, think of a wheel. And, you know, you got the outer rubber and frame of the wheel, and then you got the spokes, and then you got the hub. And it's like God saying, I place you at the center of the earth to be the hub, and the spokes are the word and deeds of God's people that reach out throughout the world. This is what I've done for you, says the Lord. So listen to this, and a little bit of a review from last week. You remember um, last week I talked about Father Abraham, and you can't understand the Old Testament without Father Abraham. And there's a point in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 12 to be exact, where there was this man named, a his name was initially Abram, and it was changed to Abraham. But at any rate, I'll just use the term, uh, the word Abraham, or the name. Abraham was, was living in spiritual darkness. He was not a believer, but God came to him nonetheless in his grace and favor. And he said to Abraham, um, I'm entering into a covenant with you. That is a formal bond of friendship and love with you, Abraham. And as part of this marriage, so to speak, with you, this bond of friendship and love, I'm going to give you two fundamental promises very quickly land and descendants, which are incredible promises given the fact that Abraham had no land of his own and given the fact that he had no descendants because when God covenanted with Abraham, do you remember how old he was? This guy was 75 years old and his wife Sarah a little bit less, but the fact of the matter is, is that they were well beyond childbearing years. They never had kids of their own and suddenly God comes to Abraham and says, you know what? I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you descendants who are going to take over that land one day. And those descendants, later on in the Bible, are called the nation of Israel. Okay, you got those two things, land and descendants. Well, there's a time where, because God doesn't lie when he gives a promise, he brings his people into that land. And that land that God chose for his people was not only a beautiful and abundant land, the Bible calls it a land flowing with milk and honey, but it was a geographically significant land, okay? He, that, because it was, as I say, it was at the very center of the earth. Put the next text on, if you would, from the book of Ezekiel. Take a look at this. This is interesting. The Lord said, the, the, thus says the Lord your God, here's the capital of, of Israel, this is Jerusalem. And I have sent, uh, set her in the center of the nations. And then this from Ezekiel 38, 12. My people who dwell at the center of the earth. The word there for center in the Hebrew is the word tabur, which could also be translated as navel. <laughs> so just, kids, you know that, you know, if you look at yourself in the mirror, you can, you can see what in the middle of your body. It's the navel. It's what we call the belly button. And you can all go look in the mirror today, and you're going to see your belly button. Where's the belly button? Right at the center of who you are. And it's interesting 
that God uses that term to describe his people. He said, I have intentionally put you geographically at the navel of the earth, at the very center of the earth, so that my light through you may shine out to the nations. Because you know the geographical location of Israel was at the crossroads of three major continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. That didn't come by chance. God providentially, by his sovereign hand, said to Abraham, I'm going to give you land and descendants, and those descendants I'm going to place at the navel of the earth at the crossroads of three major continents, so that in time, my word, my life, my glory may go from you to the nations. Interesting. All right. So we pause here for just a moment, and then maybe you're thinking... At some point in the series, though, you know, you're going, well, okay, you got, you got Israel, but if, if, if I read my Old Testament, yeah, I guess, all right, I see that. I see that the Lord wants his people to be a light to the nations, but uh, hey, pastor, wasn't it, isn't it true, though, that they, they, they really didn't do that very often, did they? And the answer is um, no. They oftentimes lost sight of their calling, their identity and purpose. They lost sight of the fact that they were, be to, uh, they were to be a model and a blessing to the nations. And let me, let me tell you why that is. Israel always struggled with two things. They struggled with some inter internal matters and some external matters. So let me explain that. Um, Israel oftentimes struggled with leadership. You know, the three major offices or callings of leadership in Israel were what? Prophet, priest, and king. And when you look at the history of Israel, you oftentimes see that, you know, her, her, many of her prophets oftentimes really didn't speak truthfully for the Lord. Many times her priests were weak and corrupt. Many times her kings are rather self-serving. And, and, and God is very clear. When he called kings to serve... And they were anointed to serve. They were to serve him. They were to be a model, example to the nations. And then by that, they were to serve the people. But many times, they simply served themselves. King Saul, for instance, is a very clear example of that. So you have weak leadership. And even today, we see in a lot of institutions, not just the church, but especially church, when you have weak leaders, then you're going to have, over time, you're going to have weak weak people. You're going to have weak followers, and that's exactly what we find in Israel. So you got weak leaders, and eventually, because the people were not given a spiritual foundation from their leaders, then what happened over time is that they themselves became very spiritually weak, and they fell into practices that, rather than being a light to the nations, they adopted the immorality of the nations around them. So they fell into idolatry. They fell into sexual deviance. Um, they, they fell into, at times, because of their immorality and infighting, they, they, they experienced civil war. Uh, there, there's just many, many difficulties that the, that, that the people faced. And basically what they did, and the, and the term that the Bible uses is covenant breaking. They, they, God covenanted with Abraham, and he says, I call you to faith and obedience. And then Abraham's descendants said over time, we're not interested in that. And they broke covenant with God. And instead of moving in this direction, they moved in that direction. And perhaps 
the end of the book of Judges puts it best in terms of a description of the people of God. Do you remember that? It says, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Not in God's eyes, but in their eyes. Internal difficulties, external difficulties, because if their own immorality wasn't enough, you had satanic schemes, and you had demonic powers at play to undo the people of God. Because Satan and demonic powers, the last thing they want to happen is for from Israel, the Messiah to come in the world, and from Israel that they would be a blessing and a light to the nations so that the nations would be brought to God. Satan doesn't want that. The demons don't want that. And if that's not enough, another external force were the nations themselves. If you read the Old Testament, what do you find? Constantly, the nation's peppering Israel. We don't want the light. And so what they're seeking to do through Satan and his schemes is trying to destroy Israel. You know what's going on today in Israel, right? Now, we can't link modern-day Israel directly with Old Testament Israel. There are many major differences here. So we have to be careful of that. But one thing that's very similar is that the land of Israel today, with all of what's going on with the war in Gaza and that, Israel many times is, is uh, taking a hit for various things. doesn't mean that Israel is acting always appropriately, and we could get into a big discussion on that. But here's my main point, is you have nations all around the world who are speaking against and who are opposed to all of what's happening there in Gaza, and it is a very complicated situation. The only reason I bring that out is because that is a reflection also, also in a way, of, more broadly speaking, what was going on in Israel in the Old Testament. So you have these nations that are pitted against Israel. And you have, you know, you read about nations and tribes. So if you know your Old Testament, you remember, oh, the Amalekites, that's right. And then you have the Edomites. And then you have the Canaanites. And then you have the Philistines. And you have the Jebusites. And the Gergesites. And the Hittites. And all these different ites, these tribes. And nations like Babylon. And... Assyria, and Persia, and Rome, and all of this, right? All like this regarding Israel. So here's my point. You have all these external factors upon the nation of Israel seeking to prevent her from being a light to the nations. And even more so, you have the internal issues that are going on with Israel. And things get so bad that eventually God says to his people, this cannot continue. I have cried out to you through the prophets to turn from your ways, but you have refused to listen. So what I'm going to do to you is I'm going to discipline you. It's like a parent, has, a parent gets to their wit's end and realizes no matter how much they have cried out to their kids to turn from their ways, let's say they're seven, eight, nine years old or whatever, the kids are not listening. And the parent said, I'm going to have to do something I don't want to do, but I have to. I'm going to have to discipline you, whatever that looks like. That's what God did with his people. So things sunk very, very low. And so what did God do? In 722 B.C., God took, and the nation of Israel was divided at this point because of her sins. God took the, two, or the ten northern tribes of Israel and caused them to go into captivity through an ascendant nation that conquered them at that time, and that was Assyria. And God gave 150 years for the two southern tribes of Judah to learn from that and turn to the Lord but they didn't, and so God caused them to go into captivity, not to Assyria, but to a nation at that time that took over Assyria, and that was Babylon. 
70 years, man, 70 years, they were in Babylon under great struggle, enslaved and all of that. And it got so bad that God's people cried out to the Lord. You can read Psalm 137 on it. They, they cried out to the Lord and they basically said this in the form of a question. No, actually, in the book of Isaiah, it's a statement. <laughs> they say, the Lord has forgotten us. The Lord has forsaken us. Hmm. Like, that's the end of the road for us. In fact, put on Isaiah. Would you put on the next uh, slide there? Isaiah 49. Listen to that. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And then here's the response of the Lord. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold. And these are really beautiful words in the Bible. They are, they are words that are engraved in my brother's grave back in the state of Iowa. Behold, because my grandfather preached on this sermon one time. Behold, my brother remembered it. Behold, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. It doesn't say, I, I've, 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 I've penciled you in. <laughs> and then your hand gets sweaty and it's gone. No, he says, I've inscribed it. I've engraved it. It's, that's, that's permanent. You're, you're my people. You're still my people. And the people are thinking, oh, this is the end of the road. Lord is, he's abandoned us. No, no, no. The Lord says, I've kept you. Now, why did God say that? Okay, it gets back to mission. Why do he say that? Is it just because, well, deep down his people weren't all that bad after all? Was it because, you know, the God we serve is just a loving and a big-hearted God? He's not going to remain mad forever. Uh-uh. Do you know why God said, I'm not going to let you go? All through this series, always remember this, these words, the promise. The promise, the promise, the promise. The promise that God gave in the Garden of Eden that he's going to send a deliverer into the world so that good will triumph over evil, but also the promise he gave to Abraham and his descendants that he would not let them go, but indeed they would always be a blessing to the nations. Even if God preserves just a few, God says, still, I'm not going to destroy you entirely. You deserve it, but I'm not going to do it because of the sake of the promise. So, how does the Old Testament end? It ends with God opening a door for Israel to return to the homeland. Right? You know the history, right? At, toward the end of the Babylonian captivity, God says, I'm just going to make you there. I'm going to have you there for 70 years. And then, you remember there was a Persian king. They had taken, Persia had taken over Babylon. It was King Cyrus. And God worked it in the heart of King Cyrus to say to the people of, to, of Judah, he says, you can now go home. Go home. And you would think that the people of Israel would jump up and down. They go, yes, no more Babylonian captivity. We're going home. Everybody pack your bags. Well, a number of them said, yes, we do have to go home. But that's like a thousand-mile journey. And over time, Babylon had given them some freedoms within the land. So do you remember how many of our ancestors of the people of Judah heeded God's word to go home? One-tenth of the population. 50,000 people, approximately. One-tenth. That's not a lot. 
So only a tenth of the people decided to be faithful to their identity and purpose. But it was enough. They went back to their homeland. And it is, it is from there that God promised that, you know what, once I situate, situate you in your land, you're going to continue to have internal and external struggles, but I'm going to keep my promise. And then God makes these promises from the Word of God. And then the last section there, if you would, in those... Two texts from Isaiah and then Zechariah. Look at this. This is the promise of the Lord. For it will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of Jacob so that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Then the next one from Zechariah. Many peoples and strong nations will come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord. In those days, ten men from the nations of every language will take hold of the robe of a Jew and say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. God, God preserves these groups of oftentimes ungrateful people and just people keep getting into trouble and God says, but no, I'm going to keep you and I'm going to use you. And in time, those nations are going to be drawn to you. It's, it's like every, all through the Bible, it's not just in the New Testament with Jesus, but all through the Bible from beginning to end, it's, it, you, you have this God. I don't know if you've really realized this, but, but God has always had his sights set on his people. But beyond that, God has always been an outward face God. Always. Always. So, three things I want to leave you with this morning. Three takeaways. Number one, God is a promise-keeping God. Period. When God makes a promise, God never breaks it. Does it mean he always fulfills his promise right away and in the time and the manner in which we would like, but he always keeps his promise? And, you know, that's, that not only refers to God's uh, promise regarding his people's blessing to the nations, but that, that those promises also go out for us personally. And we need to remember that, right? So, I mean, so to give examples, you know, God's promises are yes and amen to you in Jesus Christ when you get the diagnosis of cancer, when you don't know if you're going to live or die, honestly. Those promises go out to you which are yes and amen in Jesus Christ when you lose that job and you don't know when you're going to get another one. Those promises of God are yes and amen to you in Jesus Christ when, when you lose your income and you know how you're going to pay the bills. Those gods are yes, the promises of God are yes and amen to you when, you're, when, you're, when your son or your daughter in those teen years or those 20s or 30s they skip town, so to speak, and they leave behind the spiritual heritage they have, and they start to live the ways of the world, and you don't know if, if that son or daughter is ever going to return to the Lord. Those promises are yes and amen to you. When the, as, as Fritz prayed in his congregational prayer about those who, especially during the winter months, things get dark, and they, the, the the clouds are low and it's very easy to get the blues or even clinical depression and you don't know if those clouds are ever going to dissipate because sometimes it never feels that they are and go on and on and on with that. 
God says every time in prayer or you just draw near to me and you cry out to me and you commit yourself to me, you're my child and I've chosen you, I've covenanted with you and I'm not going to let you go. Because, because I have a purpose for you. God had a purpose for his people as a whole and God has a purpose for us as individuals. God is a promise-keeping God, number one. Number two, God has always been a missionary God from the very beginning and he calls us to be a missionary people. You got too many Christians today that when that pastor preaches on mission or people start talking about mission to care groups, they always think of Jesus' great commission before he ascends into heaven, go make disciples of all nations. You got to get that out of your head. That is a great commission, but it's merely the continuation of a mission that God had already started in the Garden of Eden. So the whole of the Bible, I will say this, and I'm talking about a technical term here called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics has to do with principles of interpretation. You cannot understand this book unless you understand God as a missionary God who calls his people to himself to participate in his mission to the world. You can't understand it. it gets at, it's, it's, not, it's not just a, a side note in the Bible. It gets at the very center of what it is all about. So that's number two. And then finally this, number three. The, the, the challenges that, that Israel faced... Um, in the Old Testament are the exact same challenges, really, um, that, we, that we face today. Internal, external challenges, right? So you have, you have internal things that, that, that we face. What internal things can you face? We, as, as a church, and I'm, you know what? This is not just pathway. This is any church, so I'm not singling us out. But it is the, it is the struggle of a lot of churches to kind of, over time, fall into a form of kind of self-absorption where ministries and worship, it's just, just kind of about us. It's, n it's not about us. <laughs> I mean, in a sense it is because God wants to flourish as a people. But in, in another way, it's not about us. It's about us serving, joining hands with the Lord, others who simply are not doing right now what God has created them to do, and that's worship Him and bring glory to His name. God says, I give you the privilege to bring that message to the nation so that they might do what I've called them to do from the very beginning. There's, there's always struggle with self-absorption, self-satisfaction, a preservationist mentality, distractions, squabbles, the idea that, that God has covenanted with us for privilege and not necessarily responsibility. It's just easy to lose sight of it. Not because we shake our hands at God and say, you know what, we know, yeah, we know we wanna, you want us to be a missionary people, but honestly, Lord, I'm going to tell you flat out, to your face, we're not interested. We don't do that. We just easily, like a lot of churches, just kind of neglect it over time. The mission series is to remind us of the calling that we have. And then there's outward struggles we have too. Satan is real. Man, he is real. Demonic forces are real. And the last thing that these demonic forces or even in some nations of the world, governmental institutions, the last thing that they want is for the light of the gospel to go out to the nations darkened by their sin and misery. So, what's the answer to all this? The answer is, crying out to the Lord, Lord, remind us of our calling. Lord, answer our prayers. Lord, give us an outward face. Lord, give us fresh infusions of your spirit. Lord, wake us up, man. Wake us up to the calling that you have given us and help us to find joy in fulfilling the responsibility that you give to us. And finally this, 
Oh, Lord, help us to love Jesus more than our creature comforts and give us faith, the faith to believe that when we fulfill the calling that you have given us to the nations and in this city, that, Lord, you're going to bless that. In fact, we believe that you're going to bless us even more than we could ever ask or imagine. And may we believe that, and may we, well, join to a close now. Why don't we stop? Why don't I stop talking, and why don't we just pray? So let's pray together, and let's ask the Lord for that. Heavenly Father, oh God, we, we pray increasingly that you would give us not only an enthusiasm for, for you and for one another, to be a blessing to each other. But Father, may the end game always be before us, which is, Lord, bless us so that we, in turn, may be a blessing to others in bringing the gospel of Jesus in word and deed to those who have yet to hear. Lord, may this never just be an addendum here, but may it be front and center and may we do this, Lord, because, because we ourselves, O oh Lord, have been the recipients of so much grace and so much blessing in our lives. We need your help, and we need the infusion of your spirit and the filling of your spirit for that. Grant that to us, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.